This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, disability studies scholar Sarah Acevedo discusses disability culture and identity. This event was recorded on March 14, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I wanted to welcome you tonight. I'm so excited to see more people interested in learning about disability from disabled people ourselves. I guess I wanted to begin by telling you a little bit of a, not an anecdote, but sort of like grounding our talk in like current events. So most of you might have heard that Stephen Hawkins passed away yesterday. And Disabled, the various disability communities around the world are pretty upset about the way Stephen Hawking's passing is being portrayed in the media. There was a meme circulating around um, and that portrayed him like flying away from his chair and something saying like, oh, you're finally free from your chair. So it demonstrates that those kinds of memes are being made by non-disabled people. Because if you speak to disabled people, the various disability communities around the world, and it's and here locally in Berkeley, in, in Berkeley, in San Francisco, and in Oakland, and in the Bay as a whole, it's pretty rich and pretty vibrant. People will tell you that their accessibility devices give them freedom, as opposed to limiting their freedom. Right, so then there was this counter meme by a disabled artist that showed uh, Hawking flying away in his chair toward the sky. Right. Um, so one thing that I wanted to like really touch on in terms of like this portrayal of disabled people without us. Right. Um, it's been countered by disability rights activists and disability justice activists very intently for the past 50 to 60 years. Um, and I mentioned the, 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 the motto or sort of like the banner, nothing about us without us, because that's a big theme. Um, it's not that disability is erased from mainstream, mainstream culture, it's that disabled voices, representations, perspectives, narratives are erased from mainstream culture. So there is a lot of talk about disability, and there is a lot of representation on disability, right? And we're, we're, where are disabled people in those representations and those narratives, right? So there is this, um, for instance, with Hawking, going back to Hawking and thinking in terms of Oh, Stephen Hawking accomplished all of these wonderful things, this commended scientist, 
visionary, he's been called, right? Oh, he's done all these things in spite of disability. That is, that is the mainstream narrative that you would hear about Stephen Hawking. What would a disabled person or most, most disabled people in disabled communities tell you? Stephen Hawking's accomplished what he accomplished, not in spite of his disability, but because of his disability, right? And so there is this idea of um, portraying, again, like thinking about portrayals of disability that do not include disabled people or disabled minds or disabled anything, right? Um, there's this very extreme sort of polarizing forms of representing disability. Um, I guess some of the most familiar ones um, are the pitiful, deficient, lacking human beings that need all this help, right? And that need all this um, mediation from people, from their immediate communities, from government and state especially, right? Like social interventionism is pretty huge in that sense. Um, and so that's one that's very common and very circulates a lot. And, an, and another extreme one is, oh, this, this disabled person has really overcome and really like passed all these challenges and now they're who they are because they have overcome disability. If we think about it in those terms that are, again, polarizing and very binary, like where is the, the disabled body in all of this? Where is disabled embodiment, right? And how do we accomplish something by completely detaching or disengaging from our identities? What does it mean to overcome disability? Right, so uh, this whole narrative of, it's called, commonly called within like disability studies communities and disability activist communities as well as the super crip myth. It's the mythology of the super crip. So cripple, crip, for us is a reclaim word, so please don't be offended. <laughs> That's another thing, there's a lot of um, goodwill and well-intentioned corrections that come from non-disabled groups toward disabled people. That happens to me quite often as I, um, I utilize, I choose um, identity first language. So I say, I am an autistic person. I am autistic. I do not use a person first language. I do not say I'm a person with autism or I have autism. Why not? because I do not differentiate my embodiment, my lived expression, my needs, my wants, my desires, um, my challenges as a human being from my identity. So autism is not something that I carry in a bag and walk around with, and then when it's convenient, I just put it next to me and show up as Professor Acevedo or however. Um, Right, um, it is uh, not something that I have ever wanted to ever wanted to do ever since I found out I was autistic. Right, so it's not a hat that I put on and off. It's not a bag that I carry and just leave at my own convenience and just like take it up again. It is an absolute 
absolutely inherent part of my identity. I am autistic in every aspect of my being, in every cell, in every fabric, in every, in every tissue of my body. And I do the things I do because I'm autistic, not in spite of being autistic. So I really wanted to touch on language and terminology because it has been one of my passions in doing disability justice work and in doing disability studies. And it is something that's usually contested. Even within the, dis the various disability communities, I mean, we're not this unified whole, uh, integrated and absolute. We're actually pretty fragmented and pretty rich, and that's actually what actualizes our various communities. So in that sense, like our, our um, I have written and I have said various times that the fracturing of disabled communities is actually a political tool. Why? Because it allows us to escape from this like monolithic, fixed, normalized identity that the outside world or non-disabled world wants to impose on us. So we don't share the same views. Many of us do, many of us don't. A lot of people choose identity first language. A lot of people choose person first language. And we are okay with having those tensions, their productive tensions within our communities. What is not so great is when I claim, oh, or tell someone, oh, I'm autistic, and they're like, don't you mean you have autism? Because like, you're, you're, you're human first. And so that makes me think what autistic people are inhuman inherently. It is, is this some sort of like granted status by the outside world and imposed onto us? So again, a lot of people within the disability community um, have said to me, the various disability communities have said to me, like, don't we have bigger fights to fight? Isn't the language thing petty? Whereas others are more on like, more of like in agreement or sort of like align with my work around ableist language. Um, and I, and, I, and I say that because, I mean, what's the pettiness in the, what some people interpret as petty is actually a vehicle, a politicizing discourse. It is a vehicle towards social transformation because we are constantly countering, constantly countering mainstream narratives, not only in our struggles, like our organized, politicized struggles, but by the mere fact of being alive <laughs> and circulating around. Like Stephen Hawking defied a lot of like beliefs in terms of like ALS. You are um, not gonna live past so and so. And this is a story that so many people who are born disabled are told, right? So their life is sort of quantified against this like industrialized sort of measurement barometer, or you won't be able to produce beyond this age, right? So, so, so living our lives and actually showing up in space every day, every day in the ways they do, in the ways we do it, challenges and sort of defies those ideas of disability in general of disability, about disability, and about disabled people. And I've always understood language as a, as a battleground, 
right? It is a site of contestation. And I've always claimed that discourse, language, not only says, but it does. It does something. When we say something, we don't stop at saying, right? And so examples, I mean, there's so many, right? But stigmatizing narratives and language and discourses and ideologies manifest in the actual concrete, physical, material space that we inhabit and that we produce, right? As social actors, we produce the spaces within which we exist and inhabit. Not all actors produce those, have access to producing those spaces. And yet they are forced into navigating spaces that, ha that they have played no role in, in making, in envisioning, in, in participating in, right? Um, so sort of the idea of, of utilizing language as a way of, as a tool of, as a power reversal tool ha, is, is sort of present in the ways that we reclaim that language from sort of the, the dominant narratives that have imposed um, slurs and the clinical labels, that's clinical labels and, and, and diagnostic sort of regimes onto our bodies that we have had to live up to, right? Sort of like we need to like portray the label and we need to embody the label in the ways that the label have been imposed onto us and sort of tagged um, onto our bodies. In contesting the very uses of the labels, in reclaiming those labels, there is a contestation, right? There is new meaning making. There is a defiance of sort of this idea of a very very um, fixed, immovable, trans-historical identity that disabled people embody at the very different stages of our lives, right? So we contest that by reclaiming language. That's one of the ways in which we do it. So you'll, you'll, you'll hear about, um, if you're interested in these topics, right? And if you dig a little deeper beyond the mainstream portrayals of disability, you'll find crip culture. You'll find neurodivergent culture, right? And you'll find cripstemologies, right? Which is a mixture between like crip embodiment and sort of consciousness and epistemology. So ways of knowing from the perspective of crips Right? Um, and people feel offended by these reclamations because there is this, this sort of like blank slate application of this new political, this political correctness sort of at the juncture of this, like in this historical sort of like juncture that we are. And in thinking about diversifying life as if, and, and the world and spaces as if life itself wasn't diverse and diversified already. So there's an exercise to diversify life and that's done through very specific strategies of stratification and control and I've argued <laughs> for the sort of the stratification of life around disability in terms of inclusion. And that, that has uh, maybe ruffled some feathers uh, in the community, in the various communities. 
And what I'm referring mostly is to this idea of inclusionism. It is not inclusion, it is inclusionism, which is this form of like reabsorbing disabled people into, the, in, into like everyday mainstream contexts by way of including them into or including us. What does it mean, this motivation to include us into something? It means that we are always already excluded from it. So naturally and organically, we are perceived as outside, in the margins, on the side, beyond. So our embodiment and our expression and our existence is always already considered at a place. So when we are in space, in community, outside with others performing disability culture, which I will tell you a little bit more about, we are reoccupying and reclaiming those spaces for us, ourselves. And we believe that those spaces are, are inherently ours. But there is a big narrative, or there has been a big narrative, that seeks to divide um, human beings, to stratify the human experience, right? According to this ideal of productivity and what bodies can do and what bodies cannot do and what bodies look like and they don't look like and what, how they fit or don't fit into this mainstream narrative of the good life, right? And what's the good life? The good life is having access to a middle-class, white, heteronormative, able-bodied existence. How many, <laughs> thank you, Latif, how many of us in the world do not fit that? Let me tell you, the great majority of the global disability community does not fit that standard. And so what happens through this, this narratives and the reproduction of these ideologies, right, which are inscribed in the everyday of our bodies, is that they produce systematized and systematic exclusion, exclusion right? In, in a way that is, that is, it almost becomes sort of the, the way things are. It is what it is. And so initiatives and alternative projects and alternative radical worlds that are, that are sort of like reshuffling social relationships observed in that way or understood in that way, of course, aren't being recognized immediately in their, in their power and in their, in their sort of um, push against all of this um, sort of like normative understandings and normative reproduction of disability as something, as an object subject of something, as an object subject of study, as an object subject of medicalization, pathologization, as a, as a subject object of inclusion, as a subject object of bodily control. So there is permanent mediation in the way that disabled bodies interact with non-disabled bodies and with other disabled bodies in space and in the world. So our experiences, uh, our material concrete experiences do not exist separate from those ideologies and those narratives. And those ideologies do not exist 
in the absolute. They're not whole. They are fragmented and they are contested. So even though historical narratives are always portrayed, as they say, the lion never tells the story or something like that. It's always the hunter who tells the story. There's always been push, 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 and pull. Those are power relations. Power doesn't only come from like an imminent source and just like drops down on us. Power exists in a relationship. So there is pushing and there is pulling. There's push-pull. And those are the struggles that happen um, around disability and many other um, marginalized, actively marginalized and underrepresented social groups experiencing inner intersecting systems of oppression, right? There is a push and pull and there is a struggle and there is a fight for meaning and one of those sites of struggle is language and very insisting upon that fact. There are people who are doing policy, whom I commend. There are people who are doing um, direct action, demonstration. I mean, look at the people who are, look at the ADAPT protesters who are right now camping outside, trying in DC, trying to put a stop to electroshock therapy for people with developmental disabilities, specifically autistic people, in terms of like the controlling of our behavior, which is so unnatural and so dangerous. And I'm just, for the podcast, I'm just like using this like flying quote marks and trying to like do something in with my inflection to see if the inflection to see if it shows up in the podcast. I'm being sarcastic, basically. Um, <laughs> so, um, one of those, one of the big um, sort of models that have been um, given credence and sort of like amplified by academics, but that have emerged from grassroots, like everything disability is grassroots. Just think about that. Like the history of disability rights in the first place is grassroots. Like people climbing the capital steps throwing themselves out of their wheelchairs, throwing their crutches, climbing those steps, invading, like sort of occupying, right? That, those were people, everyday disabled people who were being intently marginalized from various, from every aspect of everyday life. And sort of like how disability studies kind of, kind of was born out of those grassroots struggles and became institutionalized, as, so, as it so happens that grassroots knowledge becomes institutionalized and co-opted and sort of reinvented or reincorporated into this wheel of reproduction, not only in terms of like reproducing um, exchangeable goods, we understand education as an exchangeable good, right, which is a heartache, but also in terms of like this absorption of knowledge, knowledges in plural, turning it into this top-down approach to, oh, this is like the seriousness of the fact because we have put it in an academic book, right? And I am not whatsoever excusing myself from that because I am very much a part of it. I reproduce disability as anybody else who studies disability as a disabled person. 
And let me tell you, as a disabled person, I prefer to be studied <laughs> by, obviously I wanna be, I wanna study alongside somebody. <laughs> um, I, I rather that disabled issues, uh, disability issues are taken up by disabled academics, let me tell you the truth. And as much as I wish, for instance, that I could go to therapy and my therapist was autistic. You know, sort of like entering, and so disability studies is kind of in this like sort of like, um, in um, sort of strategic infiltration space of like let's legitimize our grassroots struggles and like sort of institutionalize them so that they are recognized within this sort of like matrix of dominant knowledge and, and, and sort of like ways of producing knowledge that are considered legitimate because they have a seal because um, they're accredited, um, right? And, and so doing, there is a process of separation of disability studies from disability grassroots struggles. Like there's no doubt that that occurs. It occurs with anthropology, <laughs> it occurs with sociology, right? Um, and with many other disciplines. So, and I'm telling you all this because I wanna talk about a model of understanding disability, the disability experience that was emerged from the work of um, disabled um, grassroots activists in Britain in the 1970s, and that they were working together, so disabled activists who were living in the community with disabled, folk, disabled people who were still institutionalized and um, being brutalized and dehumanized within institutions of care for the disabled. So working in collaboration, they started thinking about the ways in which society disables different bodies, right? So it is an active, there's an active process that happens, and that process is called the process of disablement, right? So those that given fancy terms were brought into academia by disabled British sociologists, drawing from this experiences of, of, of grassroots struggles and, 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 and brought it to bear onto this model that had prevailed the history of any study of disability. Not disability studies, that's different. Any study of disability, about disability, on disability without disabled people. Um, and so, and that's, it's, it's, it's known in disability studies as the biomedical or individual model of disability, which understands disabled bodies as inherently, individually deficient. So it is a problem, it's, 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 it's an inherent problem of the body. It has nothing to do with the societal circumstances, ideologies, practices, attitudes, institutional practice, I already said practices, um, institutional approaches to different embodiment, right? No, the dis disability is just a natural, organic occurrence, and it's a deficit, needs to be cured needs to be hidden, needs to be manicured, needs to be prestheticized, needs to be handled, needs to be observed in confinement, right? So this, is bit, this, this has been the tradition, right? The long Western tradition of understanding and managing and administering the disabled body through a biomedical perspective. That, unfortunately, is the perspective that continues to prevail 
today, 2018, after 40, 50 years of struggles by disabled people, grassroots academics in collaboration, artists, performers, poets, you name it, there is still this understanding of disability from this deficit perspective. So these academics, like this British sociologist, were trying to be like, look, these people on the ground, they talked about a social perspective of disability which locates the, prob the problem um, outside the body. It is not different embodiment. It is not the different body different, that also in quotation marks, that's inherently problematic that's inherently burdensome, or that's inherently abnormal, right? It is actually the social structures, practices, policies, institutions, interpersonal relationships that produce disability into a category, category of deficiency, and therefore a category of social oppression in every aspect of life, right? So in doing so, this battle sort of begun, right? It was like disabled intellectuals fighting against the rest of the world in terms of like this academic traditions and like schools of thought that had been like totally established in disabled academics and intellectuals, not even disability studies yet, but just like within sociology were like, look at us, we're disabled, we're talking to you. And the disciplines were like, you can't possibly be an academic, you can't possibly be an intellectual because you're disabled. So I don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Right? So it's this power, power uh, relationship and this imbalance in, in between both ca two camps, so to speak. Um, and it's so it happens that the social model has informed so many of our contemporary struggles. It continues to do so because it brings the idea of disability to bear on the material reality, concrete reality of the disabled body, of, of disabled bodies, in a way that we cease to exist within this platonic realm of ideas um, and narratives and metaphor, because disability is a very useful metaphor, let me tell you, for writers, oh my god. It's like the primer, like, let's go to disability and use all this imagery about collapsing societies through the image of the disabled body, right? In a way as to detach it completely from the realm of material experience. And in doing so, from our lives, from the very experience of disability, from living disability, which is the title of the talk, right? Which I was supposed to talk about from the beginning, but I didn't. Because it doesn't matter how many things I write, I will still just like speak from the heart, which I think it's a good thing. So living disability is embodying disability, which we do, which disabled people do. We embody that thing. We celebrate that thing. We struggle with that thing, right? But in, in insisting on an erasure of disability and disabled people from producing everyday life and from producing the world, that's why we continue to circulate, circulate as metaphors, as charity cases are pitiful, 
That is not how we understand ourselves. That is not how we see ourselves. That is not how we represent ourselves. Disability culture, huge depth, vibrancy, richness, multi-layeredness of experience and deliciousness, and just like multifaceted ways of looking at our bodies in a three from a three-dimensional perspective as opposed to these flat allegories. One of these examples, in the Bay, like be proud, sins invalid, and Lativ is part of sins invalid. It is this performance troupe of disabled artists of color centering queer and, non, and gender non-conforming experiences and bringing sexuality and sensuality in your face. Because the medicalized experience or representation of disability is the perpetual infant body. The, asec the non-sexual, not asexual, sorry, the non-sexual body, right? That is the mainstream that is completely dissonant with the way we live our lives and experience our bodies as pleasurable. We experience this body, our bodies as pleasurable. We experience, experience our bodies as oppressed. We experience our bodies as interdependent. We experience our, our bodies as this huge amalgamation of greatness, of possibility, of hope outside of this binary construction of the deficit and the perfect body. What is the perfect body? What is the able body? Doesn't the able body need the disabled body in order to exist? Doesn't it need to be constructed again, like in tandem? Like how else do you define an able body? Everything that a disabled body isn't is the able body. So we still, we're still needed. Like the able body needs us, disabled bodies, to reproduce itself in this hegemonic, hierarchical way. So this division, like think about the division between normality, quote unquote, and abnormality, which are both historical. They're constructs. Like abnormality and normality don't just exist in a vacuum of like, organicity, or that's just the way it is. Things are the way they are. Their white supremacy is just a natural occurrence of the hierarchical, you know, like it's, it isn't. It is a product of social relations that exists within very specific value systems and ideologies. So what I wanted to, wanted to do today mostly was invite you to like really think beyond the binary. To just really dig deeper and look at the contradictions that exist like beyond, within, and the outside of those binaries that are so limiting and are so oppressive. So I've talked about metaphorical uses of disability, right? Think about the many ways in which disability is represented in literature. There's this amazing book by um, the first the person that I the first person that I studied with disability studies back in 2009. 
It's a very well-known disability studies scholar, David Mitchell, and his wife, Sharon Snyder, write astonishing stuff from a cultural model perspective, which is an integrative perspective. It's, of course, not the, bi the biomedical individual model. It's not the social model. It is an integrative approach to it. And they write this amazing book called Narrative Prosthesis. And I've challenged my students to try to first catch themselves in metaphorizing the body and what it does, what that does to the material experience of bodies in the everyday. Try to catch themselves in like utilizing and recurring to the metaphor, constantly the metaphor of, of embodiment, not only in terms of disability, in so many ways. Right? Think about the, his, the, 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 the construct of the hysteric, for instance, how that's used in literature, right? In a way, I see those iterations of like hysteria, quote unquote insanity, quote unquote losing of control with representations, contemporary representations of autistic people. And sort of how our bodies are so out of control. They need to be controlled. They need to be tamed. They need to be trained. Because they fall without, they fall outside of that norm, normativity of like, if you have, if you're here, and you have an autistic person sitting in the audience and they're rocking back, which I do a lot. I rock back because I just can't rock because this microphone seems like it's going to jot me in the face, but I do any other things. But there's an autistic person who's like rocking and like, woo, like super enjoying themselves and walking around. People are going to start being like, ooh, that's so disturbing. Like, look at my body. It's so regulated. I'm so regulated, you know? I'm so, I'm like so... I'm so in control of my body. I'm not like one of those people who can't control them. So they should not be taken out of their home, you know? Again, sarcastic emphasis. Um, it is this idea of bodies out of place once again. Hysteric women were also out of place, and they needed to be trained in their behavior. So this literary images around uh, that, that utilize the disabled body give it so much visuality and so much attention in the literary rhetoric, rhetorical world, world that then people seem to just see us in that rhetorical. It's like if we're here, they will not engage with us. They will engage with the rhetoricity of disability and the disabled body. As portrayed by non-disabled writers, poets. Where are we in that? Aren't we just a narrative prosthesis? <laughs> yeah? Um, another thing that I see so often with my students, and just people in general, that's been like a really rich terrain of addressing this from the perspective not of a professor who teaches stuff about disability. No, as a disabled professor who teaches about disability studies, is this an engagement with 
ableist language, everyday ableist language. So, so, so yes, metaphorical iterations, but in a more sort of like everyday, sort of casual way. Oh, the weather is so OCD. Um, that is an insane film. People don't usually think too deeply about the histories that exist behind the usage of these labels and these words. They have a history. Just as much as the construction of normality and abnormality has a history, these words that we use so casually in, in, in such arbitrary ways today, that's crazy, OCD, I was blinded by it, I was blind to it, it was a blind spot, you know, it's a crotch, the economy's crippled which is not the same as reclaiming crip culture, let me tell you. That's a very different iteration right there. Is there is a history. And the history is a history of brutalization. The brutalization of disabled bodies in the creation of nation states. And the separation of bodies and stratification of bodies again in terms of who belongs and who doesn't belong. I mean, we can't give citizenship to everybody. We gotta create citizenship in a dialectic with non-citizenship, because then how can citizenship exist on its own? We gotta create nationals and immigrants. I mean, otherwise, what is the, one doesn't exist without the other in this very dialectical oppressive tension, which is also a tension that produces resistance. The deployment of ableist language to create affect among audiences at the expense of disabled people, you know? So yes, the histories behind these deployments are really torturous. They are real. They are part of a history that's been mostly erased from dominant understandings of the body. And those are the histories of the asylum, in conjunction with the birth of psychiatry in the 19th century, scientific racism, and the production, the systematic production of these labels that would then determine humanity and non-humanity, humanity and subhumanity. One, another book by David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder, the people I mentioned before, called Cultural Locations of Disability. There is a graphic, because they speak a lot of, about just like British sociologists and the social model to speak a lot about the capitalist order in terms of like the further stratification of bodies along a line of productivity. So just picture the factory and the assembly line system. So there is this desire for productivity, there's need for productivity and surplus value that every part of the process needs to be a cog in the machine. So reproducing sameness is really important. So our bodies become like the appendixes of the machine. What happens to a disabled body that does not produce at the rate of capitalism? It becomes ejected. But it not only becomes ejected, it becomes labeled as deficient and inefficient against a system that is totally arbitrary and that functions on rhythms that are absolutely external to the life of the body. 
which is a messy, leaky, like Sheldrake, the, the theorist of disability, calls our bodies are leaky, meaning our bodies do not fit neatly within boxes. They will spill out of the boxes entirely. For instance, people, whenever I say I'm autistic, and people are like, no, come on, you can't be. You're getting a PhD. Like you have access. You, you, no, they don't have to say you have access to speech. They say you talk. Didn't I just fell completely melted outside of that box that they created for themselves around what autism is and isn't? So bodies are leaky. We leak everywhere. We do not exist. We do exist in material confinement. Of course we do, because that's our history. But we also exist in permanent rebellion and resilience. And we exist and sort of like a spill out, spill out of the box all the time. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous to the capitalist system of reproduction because we cease to be cogs in the machine. So the creativity that emerges from disability culture, cultures in plural, because there's many, as, as many disability communities as there are in the world, there's as many disability cultures, is this like threat to the capitalist order of reproduction where we are bringing a different way of living disability. There it is, living disability again. We're bringing a different way of living disability, of embodying and celebrating disability that people feel so puzzled and baffled by. Oh, why do these poor people have to celebrate? Look, like, oh, look at that wheelchair person because that's how they refer to us. Oh, look at that. Oh, poor, oh. Like, what, what is there to celebrate? I mean, of course, within the narrative of like deficiency and lack and, and like, like, like incapability that people perceive us through. I mean, yeah, of course, right? I wonder if they ever want to come and talk to us and like experience us through the, through the lens of multiplicity. You know, like those, I don't know the name in English, but those things that you look, the kaleidoscope. Like you put that on and you start seeing the body in its multiplicity and its colorfulness and it's just so amazing. Another thing that becomes, that is really dangerous about saying, because discourse not only says but also does, is functioning labels. I've got to tell you about functioning labels because I gotta and because I'm autistic. <laughs> and like sort of in relation again to this like sort of creation of a mm, way of understanding autism without autistic people. So it's like coming out from the DSM manual, of course, who's like produced by all these thinkers of difference and embodiment that is so abnormal and apparent, and they need to be tamed. And they, again, sarcasm podcast. They need to be tamed. They need to be contained. They need to be labeled. There needs to be a production of disability alongside ability. I'm repeating that. Just for it to be clear, I want you to take that with you. There is no natural or inherent abnormality in the human, non-human, and uh, other sentient being world. 
Those are categories that are produced, and I would love for you to start thinking about that in terms of like how you experience not only disability, but different embodiment. So there is this idea, like have you heard about the autism spectrum? I know that this is also an idea that's ruffled some feathers within my communities. I think, happen to think that spectrum, the spectra, aren't just occurring in nature, naturally. Spectra are just there, and they're just like, spectra is another way of organizing the world. Because let me tell you, do you think about spectra as an infinite set of possibilities? Or do, we, do you imagine a point of departure and a point of arrival? Come on, let's be honest, right? There's this little disabled and, and semi-disabled, ooh, no, not so disabled. I mean, that's not how we describe ourselves because we're not one, any one thing. We're so many things at so many different times and spaces and places, right? So people are fond of thinking about autism alongside the spectrum mentality, which in my opinion, or paradigm, which in my opinion is another way of stratifying autistic experience. So there is this extreme iteration of autism, which is built entirely on a stereotype, which excludes the large majority of, of autistic people. Again, right? And then there is the other side. There, there is like, think for instance about a very disrespectful representation of autism. Why? Because it just because it's not an autistic person, first of all, and because it generalizes and universalizes the experience of autism. It's really rude and negative, and it's Rayman. Just because I want you to think in terms of a, spec a spectrum that is like binary. Think about Rayman. Think about Temple Grandin. What do you have? What do you have? You have the savant over here, and you have the absolute. Um, contrary to that. It does not do a service to either of them. And what happens in between? So people either think that we're all Raymond or that we're all Temple Grandin. Low functioning Raymond, high functioning Temple Grandin. Those are also constructed around access to verbal literacy skills or spoken language. And hasn't been language constructed alongside the idea of humanity itself. Aren't we said to be language beings, social beings? Whomever said that autistic people who have no access to, to, to spoken language don't have anything to say or contribute? And who said that, we, that the Temple Grandin was always like in this, like no meltdowns. Did you see Temple Grandin at home trying to leave their home? Did you see me this morning trying to leave my home and becoming completely frozen at the door? And being like, oh my God, how do I leave? I don't know how to leave. So these iterations of like polarity of bodies are so, so detrimental 
to the actual lived experiences and to the actual collective liberation of our bodies and of our experiences. So I see this a lot. I see this binary thinking around disability that is so prevalent and so... I want to see is unexamined among non-disabled people. And I understand that sort of like the bombardment of imagery in literature, in media, in film, in reality TV, would make you think, like think about Jerry Lewis and the Teletone. Wouldn't that make you think that we really need pity and charity as opposed to full access to citizenship rights? And not only full citizenship rights in terms of like our civil society participation, but think about the, re the production and reproduction of culture. It is not a matter, it is not only a matter of granting us access. Why do we need to be granted access? Why do we need to be included? Doesn't that mean that the majority is including us in something that they have built for themselves? In the image of themselves and that in of itself excludes a large majority of the, the large majority of people, all right? So, but so it's not only about giving us access to and like access to employment and uh, no, includes includes included within employment, included within education, included within included within. It's about thinking about disabled people as cultural agents, as cultural actors, and as producers of culture. And I'm talking as a total anthropologist right now. <laughs> which might be a good thing. But I'm just like really concerned with this aspect, like this separation of disabled lives is seen through the lens of like right, human rights, a human rights framework that is so dangerous in terms of like it's, it's sort of like charity undertones. It's like some group of people that are superior, giving an inferior group of people access to things. And it's not access that is determined or described or produced by disabled people saying, this is what we need. No, is by non-disabled people saying, this is what you need. And disabled people are like, no, that's not what we need. And non-disabled people saying, yeah, it is what you need. No, it's not, yes, it is, you know? Yeah, but what's at stake, though, is material survival. It's not only this, like, pitted against each other kind of petty battle. Our material concrete survival is at stake when we do not get to determine what our access needs are. But they, those are determined for us. You know? And when our lived experience is constantly and systematically mediated. So there's this idea that we exist in this natural um, enmity. Is that a word? Being somebody's enemy? I just made it up. I love made, making words up. So this, this, this being enemies, right? We're natural elements, enemies. Disabled people are non-disabled people. And so the heroic mediators are the professionals. 
either therapist, the special education teacher, the speech pathologist, the IP, the, 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 the regional manager, the, the caseworker, the OT, the PT, this like sort of proliferating landscapes of professionals that mediate our everyday experiences between ourselves and the world. And I'm not trying to say that all professionals disgrace disability. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the mentality is one of, I will help you because you are not equal to me. And I can see that. And I can perceive that. Perhaps not through my understanding of what of what your body is and does outside of the norm, but because I see the way social structures and social organizing systems are at play. So yes, in many ways, there is a genuine, well-intended desire to help. It cannot, however, come at the expense of our own sovereignty over our own bodies and our autonomy. Historically, disabled people's bodies are like public property. Think about it in those in this terms. We ride BART, which is an absolutely horrifying experience for me as an autistic woman. The overstimulate everything about BART is horrifying for me. But think about BART. And think about a wheelchair user that gets some bard, and so they get on bard, and they're doing their thing. They're like either texting with someone or doing whatever they're doing in their life, like they do. And people still stare. Um, and then suddenly, the wheelchair user is positioned next to a, because there's rarely space for the well, like people didn't make space like this and they like a heroic act of like, oh yes, we will move away for you. Um, but this disabled, this the wheelchair user is sitting quite close to somebody else, right? On the train, the train stops at 12th Street Station in Oakland. And the per, Latisse laughing. Because you know what I'm going to say, maybe. And the person non-disabled person sitting next to the wheelchair user just suddenly uses the chair as a prop to get up. Public property? I mean, I have sisters, of course, to tell me and that I've witnessed people just coming and touching their hair. Are you public property? I have sisters who are brutally catcalled in the street. So are we inherently public because we inhabit and navigate public spaces? Another one is, the other day, I was my friend Mike, and somebody else, another friend, and so we were hanging out, and there were these two people of Bart who came and started touching Reed, like, yes, brother, yes, and Reed was like, yes, what? Like, what's up? Um, and then you were like, why are they touching me? And <laughs> they came and touched you, and it was like. So it is this kind of like modern, or not modern, but sort of like new iteration of hand in position. Hand in position. 
is within a religious context, okay? I won't say mention exactly which context. There is a belief, there was a belief that hand in position will heal, would heal the crippled. And I'm using intently the word, please. So it healed the cripple. So this seems like like a new iteration, right? Of like the hand in position of like, oh brother, right? And it's like, I'm not your brother, don't touch me. All of these. And the question, the question. So read the same night was like, oh, before when I was coming here, some, a lady came to me and said, what happened to you, son? He's like, nothing happened to me. I was born with cerebral palsy. Not, there is no occurrence. <laughs> so there is like this idea that disability is only an acquired tragedy in life as opposed to a experience of a congenital, a congenital birth of someone that's born the way they are and why would they not want their bodies except for what society says about their bodies. Because we use our bodies, how we use our bodies, and then society's like, no, don't use it that way. No, it's not thin enough, or no, it's not light enough, or no, it's not regulated enough. Train it. Train it in so many ways, right? The other day, I was presenting, oh, that's the day that we were hanging out. We were, I was presenting at this panel for the movie Gattaca. Do you ever see the movie Gattaca? It's like it's 21st. No, I see faces. Oh my God, watch it. It's like a super young Ethan Hawke with a super young Jude Law with a super lovely, amazing, great Uma Thurman. And it's about genetic engineering. 21 year, yeah, disability is totally a prop. It's a total prop. It's, a, it's, it's like the movie, the film is so interesting to talk about because it does a lot for disability, politicizing disability, and it also doesn't. So it's like disabled people being like, we'll politicize this thing, but it wasn't the intention. <laughs> it was, oh my God, it was a mess. But, so I was at the, the film Gattaca, like at the panel, and at the end, people were like, okay, so like audience was like, okay, so what are we doing? Like have we like progressed some? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's like when people ask me about feminism, I'm like, eh. <laughs> I don't know, have we? Um, but um, <laughs> just in general, like thinking about <laughs> media representation, to be quite honest with you, like as an autistic woman, with tons of privilege as well, lateral privilege, I have tons of it. I'm an academic, I'm sitting here. I get to talk about these things. But as an autistic woman, like, have you, like, seen Atypical? Not seen, watch it episodes, but have you heard of it? Okay, so is this very neurotypical actor portraying an autistic actor through the savant lens? So he's this wonderful doctor. Oh, such a talented doctor, because he's autistic, of course. He's savant. He's like a Temple Grandin version of this doctor. And he's like super socially awkward and dating. It's totally stereotypical. It's like playing us without us. How many autistic actors are there out there? Many. 
why wasn't an autistic actor cast for that? And maybe the autistic actor would be like, I don't want to play that. <laughs> like, I don't want to play. That's not my life. That's not the life of the people I know are my friends. So in this idea of inclusionism, again, let's go back to inclusionism. It's like, oh, people have been complaining about Hollywood representation of minorities. It's not minority-sized communities or marginalized actively. It's minorities, marginal communities. So they're like addressing those gaps by casting non-minority non groups to play us. I mean, isn't that another way to disengage with the materiality of our existence? It's like we only exist on this like textual plane or film, right? It's like we're not here. Come on, cast us. Cast us, we've been saying this, cast us. So I'm like, I will not, and this is my closing remark. <laughs> I will, I said, I will not, I do not want to compromise my bodily experiences, my near cognitive style, akin to many other people that I know in, in, in my life who are also autistic or otherwise neurodivergent, I do not want to compromise that for the sake of mainstream representation. I'm not going to be happy and say, oh, look, they're, they're talking about autism in terrible ways. Why would I want media representation without me? So I'm going to like sort of evoke like a, a disabled elder in closing this and say, Nothing about us without us, James Charlton. <laughs> Go like this. Go like this. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.